Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast, the show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. You're probably wondering what this sound is. Well, I got curious. I searched for a sound effect for a dark wind. And this is what I found. Now, why dark wind? Well, at this point in the story, after discussing the three, the seven, and the nine were reminded about what happens next. Sauron challenges Numenor and finds that he does not have the army to take them on. And of course, everything goes from that point forward, like we've already talked about. The island is destroyed. And we're reminded here that, quote, that ruin was more terrible than Sauron had foreseen, for he had forgotten the might of the lords of the West in their anger. The world was broken and the land was swallowed up and the seas rose over it. And Sauron himself went down into the abyss. But his spirit arose and fled back on a dark wind to Middle-earth, seeking a home. He returns home on this dark wind, and I get a picture of his spirit drifting here and there, looking for a place to go, and finding that the Middle-earth that he left was not exactly the same, because the elves were making things better. They had been busy while he was gone. And so today's story picks up from where that story about Numenor leaves off. And we get a glimpse into a little bit about what the elves were doing at this time period, which we've set up over the last few episodes. But we also get the continued story of what happens to the faithful as they find new homes in Middle-earth. So although I'm starting you off with this dark wind, it's less about Sauron in this episode and more about something brand new. And we're focusing back on the men of Middle-earth. So today we're talking about the founding of Arnor and Gondor, the kingdoms of the Dúnedain. 
So the picture that we got from Sauron's time in Numenor is that Numenor had descended into this imperialistic mode where they were conquering lands and subjugating mankind on the main continent. And so the assumption there would be that things were going pretty poorly for most of Middle-earth. Except there's the story about what is going on with the elves during this time. And we know that Gilgalad had grown powerful. Sauron was using the Numenorean forces in order to do terrible things, but his focus was mostly on getting them to reject the Valar, to destroy themselves. He wasn't as concerned with taking over the rest of the world at this point. And so it leaves a bit of a power vacuum. The elves grow back. This is one of those rare moments in the story where the elves are not necessarily receding into the west and everybody's going away. We're told that the power of Gilgalad had grown great in the years of his absence, his being Sauron, and it was spread now over wide regions of the north and west and had passed beyond the Misty Mountains and the Great River even to the borders of Greenwood the Great and was drawing nigh to the strong places where once he had dwelt secure, Sauron had dwelt secure. The elven kingdom had gone all the way to Mirkwood at this point, had reached most of these lands, and was keeping them safe. And when Sauron has to flee a sinking Numenor, he heads back to Mordor, to the Black Land, we're told. And for a time, he meditated war. This gives the impression that that was the only thing on his mind at this point. Now that Numenor is gone, what do I do about these pesky elves? <laughs> and wait a minute, what about the faithful? And that's where their story picks up. They were saved from destruction. Remember the wave that was summoned and flung Elendil and Isildur and Anarion and their people into Middle-earth, past the coastlines. Well, we finally get a story about what happens to them. And the language here is fun. They were born aloft on hills of water, even to the clouds. And they descended upon Middle-earth like birds of a storm. That's quite the imagery. And then we're told about exactly where they ended up. And they ended up in very different places. Elendil was cast up by the waves in the land of Linden. And he was befriended by Gilgalad. Thence he passed up the river Lun. And beyond Eridluin, he established his realm. And his people dwelt in many places in Eridor about the courses of the Lun and the Baranduin. But his chief city was at and Numenos. And we're given even more details about some of the specifics, but the general sense of this is that Elendil and his people, the faithful that were spit out of the ocean up in the northern part of Middle-earth, ended up very near to the locations where Gilgalad was, in Linden, Cirdan the shipwright was up there, and they became friends. They were already elf friends. They were the faithful. They were the ones that 
these elves would have been happy to receive as neighbors. And we end up with a parallel here. An elven kingdom in the north that is holding back the darkness and a group of men who seek refuge in a land away from the dangers where they came from. What does that sound like? It's another echo of the first age. The Noldor taking kingdoms in the north in order to hold back Morgoth and the Edain showing up, this time coming from the west from Numenor instead of out of the east across Middle-earth. And this kingdom is founded. This is the foundation of Arnor. And I'm going to pause here for a moment because there are some vagaries around exactly what the population size was, how many people fleed, how many ships there were. We're not given detailed numbers about that. But we are to understand that there are enough individuals in both Arnor, which will be the Northern Kingdom, and Gondor, which we're more familiar with from the Lord of the Rings, the Southern Kingdom, in order to create these cities, these dwellings, to man these towers, to build armies. There is a significant percentage, even though they were the outsiders, basically, in Numenor, there's still a significant percentage of people who were loyal and enough to found these new kingdoms. So if you've been paying attention, Linden is west of the Shire. It's up in that northwestern part of the continent. And so the kingdom of Arnor is actually founded north of the Shire and the kind of stretches around that area. And in the text, it actually notes another thing that's very interesting. And there remained many barrows and ruined works in those places. So spoilers, Arnor doesn't continue on forever. It ends up in ruins at, at some point. But what is one of the first things that the group of hobbits come across when leaving the Shire? A barrow down. These burial sites for the civilization of Arnor. And some of them are now haunted. That whole situation plays out. It, they skip it in the movies, but the whole situation plays out in the books. And this is a reminder of this kingdom that used to be here. So what about Isildur and Anarion? Well, their ships and their people were sent southward. And it says, Isildur and Anarion were borne away southwards. And at the last, they brought their ships up the great river Anduin that flows out of Rovanion into the western sea in the Bay of Belphalas. And they established a realm in those lands that were after called Gondor. The river Anduin is the river that the fellowship goes down in order to head to or towards Gondor after being in Lothlorien, after meeting Galadriel. That's the same river. We are now in that part of the continent. And here the question of the population is answered a little bit. It says, Long before in the days of their power, the mariners of Numenor had established a haven and strong places about the mouths of the Anduin. In despite of Sauron in the black land that lay nigh upon the east, right? This part borders Mordor. Mordor is very close to them here. In the latter days, to this haven came only the faithful of Numenor, and many, therefore, of the folk of the coastlands in the region were in whole or in part akin to the elf friends 
and the people of Elendil, and they welcomed his sons. So not everybody who shows up in Middle-earth here is required to found these new kingdoms. There are elf friends. There are people who have been living here for quite a while who already settled the area. So that adds to the population. It makes it a little bit more reasonable that you'd have enough people to found these cities. And which cities were they? Well, they're going to be very familiar. The chief city of this southern realm was Osgiliath. Osgiliath is the ruined city that we see in the return of the king, the one on the river, the one that Gondorian soldiers are fighting to hold, and they, the one they get sent back into and get trounced by the incoming armies of Sauron. This city straddles the Anduin. It goes right through the middle of it. And we're told that there they built a great bridge upon which there were towers and houses of stone, wonderful to behold. This is another point I find very interesting and something, especially in our modern world, we don't see very much of. It is very rare in modern bridge construction for you to see buildings or towers on top of a bridge. In the ancient world, or at least in the medieval world, I'm not 100% sure about the ancient world. This might be a thing too back then. Bridges were built across rivers, but you often saw buildings along the sides of the road across the bridge. This was a fire hazard because many of those buildings were made out of wood. And uh, London Bridge burning down, for example, is, I believe, an example of one of these. If you look at old pictures or old art of the situation, it might be confusing because it looks like lines of apartments across a bridge that caught on fire. Same exact kind of thing. So Asgiliath wasn't the only city in this area. We have the founding of a few other cities as well. And they started as towers. Minas Ithil meant Tower of the Rising Moon. This was the tower that was set just on the outskirts, up in the, in the hills that led to the mountains of Mordor to the east. You might recognize it better by the name we know it in The Lord of the Rings, Minas Morgul, which means the Tower of Sorcery. It was renamed when the Witch King took it for himself. But this was originally meant to be kind of a watchtower over the lands of Mordor. And then we get another tower, quote, to the westward Minas Anor, the Tower of of the setting sun at the feet of Mount Minduluin. Man, I'm going to mess up these words. Minduluin, probably, I guess, uh, as a shield against the wild men of the Dales. This is another city that you're familiar with, just under a different name. Minas Anor, A-N-O-R, becomes Minas Tirith, the Tower of the Guard, or the Tower of Watch. Because once Minas Ithil gets taken and turn to Minas Morgul, this is the last tower before Mordor. It is the one watching this side of the Gondorian realm. And we're all pretty familiar with exactly how important this location becomes 3,000 years from now. 
So let me tell you a little story. You know that we get sponsors on these podcasts, and Yuffie, who does these smart locks with video cameras in them, reached out and they sent me a smart door lock with a 2K camera, a doorbell, and a finger reader, all the bells and whistles. And I was like, okay, cool. They sent it to me. I already have one on my back door. When I opened this up and installed it, I was like, why didn't I go with Yuffie to begin with? Because this is a step above the one that I've been using. The finger reader just works. The 2K camera is so clear. I can see when somebody's at the front door, if it's Amazon or if it's somebody trying to sell me something. It even has night vision and works in the dark. It makes me feel so much safer. Plus, my son can just put his finger on the door and just come right in when he gets home from school. He doesn't have to worry about losing keys and you don't even have to change the batteries in these because it's got like 10,000 milliwatt hour battery that lasts for like four months. Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. All right, here we are in the middle of the show, and this is where we get to thank our patrons for supporting the show and making this possible. So thank you to all of you. Big shout outs to our newest patrons, including Living Dead Nerd, Annette B, LS, Lori B, and Katerina Z. Welcome to the Patreon. Thank you for your support. And that means uh, all 182. Wow of our patrons supporting the show. And uh, we have to shout out our VIP patrons every week. This includes, let's see how quick I can get through this, uh, AK Music Lover, Anakin Skywalker, Austin C, Azzle Razzle, Bo, Black Squirrel, Brandy D, Chewbacca, Cutter Metal Works, David S, David M, Drupal, Esoteric Rage, Fulcrum, Gavin Alaf, Gemma D, Jesse P, Jesus is Alive, with a bunch of exclamation parks, Kate L, Katie S, Capenna, Larry, Lori B, Nick K, Nick L, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Rivqua, Sam B, Swiggy Swoo, TJT, Tour Son of Whore, Tyler M, Wes P, Who Let the Juana. Thank you to all of you. Holy moly. Uh, if you are curious about why all these people are signing up on the Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash L-O-T-R, Lorecast. Uh, and there's lots of stuff you can get, like t-shirts and ad-free episodes and things like that. Also, we got some new reviews in. If you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, I'll read it out on a future episode of the show. So this one comes from Andy917 in the U.S. who writes, Very interesting. As a casual LOTR fan ever since the first Peter Jackson movie came out, I've always been curious to dive into the lore, but I have been really intimidated by the Bible-esque density of the Silmarillion. I love the way this podcast breaks the story down into digestible chunks that are interesting and memorable. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Andy. Uh, This one comes from A. Ian Yara, or Yara, maybe, in the Netherlands. Incredible, an incredible podcast. One doesn't simply start a Lord of the Rings podcast, but Tom did it. I listen every day while cycling to school. 
I read the trilogy and The Hobbit when I was nine or something and immediately wanted to start in The Silmarillion, but my school didn't have it and my mom sold her copy a year prior. I had been on the lookout for a podcast or video series explaining The Silmarillion for two years ago. I found this pod. Not exactly two years, but close enough. Yeah, like a year and a half, maybe at this point. Uh, I have been listening ever since. Tom is an amazing host who explains the lore in a way that reminds me of Tolkien. And I only can imagine Tolkien would do it the same way. Uh, he would make a podcast a hundred or a thousand percent, a hundred percent and lots of love from Amsterdam. Thank you so much, Ian. Uh, and then we have one more from DJ Grizzly Bear from the United States. He writes, love it. It's so fun to learn about my favorite fantasy world, the complexity and depth of the world and culture Tolkien created before actually writing the books is truly a marvel. And then there's an interesting point here, and I'm going to explain a little bit about this, too. Though I give it five stars, the only thing I recommend Robots Change is where he places the shoutouts and thanksgiving to the fans section in each episode. I, I hate that it breaks in the story and feel that it needs to be added to the end, not the middle. That is a an interesting point, uh, DJ Grizzly Bear. When I started the Fallout Lorecast, my, my first podcast I'm still doing currently, uh, I had originally set it up like that. And I very quickly found that a lot of people disliked that more than putting it in the middle. In fact, many people complained that the podcast was too short because it gave the illusion that the podcast itself was X number of minutes long and then ended short, even though the runtime looked longer. And then I spent the whole second half, and I'm putting this in quotes when it was clearly only like three to five minutes uh, of the show doing this part where I was talking to the audience. And so it it has to do with like perception of it. If you're going to have to do a point in the show where you talk to your audience and thank people for their support and stuff, it has to go somewhere. It can either go in the end or the beginning. Neither of those are great. So it goes in the middle. So there's a break in the middle. It's kind of a rock and a hard place thing, but this is the least problematic of the three options I've found. So that's why I do it this way. Um, but thank you for your support. And uh, hopefully that makes sense. Um, but thank you, everybody. And also thank you to those of you who are rating the show on Spotify or whatever other podcatchers or sharing it with your friends or your family or any of that stuff. All of that is a huge, huge help trying to get a show discovered, you know, in a sea of so many other shows. So I really appreciate it. All right, let's get on with the rest of the story. So back to these locations, we get some more specific detail now about each of these locations in Gondor and some of the other things that were created during this time. And again, this gives you a sense that the population must have been big enough to do this or had significant help from the elves. And that's kind of more the case in Arnor in, in the north. It says here in Minas Ithil was the house of Isildur and in Minas Anor, the house of Anarion. But they shared the realm between them, and their thrones were set side by side in the Great Hall of Asgiliath. So if you think about it, you have these two different towers. One is a little bit more eastward, one is a little bit more westward. And right between the two of them, the city of Asgiliath on the river that split the realm in that eastern and western side. And the two sons ruled over this realm together from Asgiliath, although they each had their own tower. And then we find out about some other locations, and some of these you're going to be familiar with. 
It says, but other works marvelous and strong they built in the days of their power. At the Argonath, remember going down the river with the fellowship and seeing those gigantic statues of the kings? That's the Argonath. And at Aglorond and at Erich and in the circle of Angronost, which men called Isengard, they made the pinnacle of Orthanc of unbreakable stone. So where did Saruman get that tower from? The Gondorians. They were the ones who constructed these buildings, these great locations that showed the scope of their power even after Numenor fell. But wait, that's not all. They created these new locations. They crafted these new towers and structures, but they also brought things with them. Many treasures and great heirlooms of virtue and wonder the exiles had brought from Numenor. And of these, the most renowned were the seven stones and the white tree. This should sound familiar. The white tree was grown from the fruit of Nimloth, the fair. And it goes on and explains the whole lineage of the seeds of these trees that descended all the way from Quote, the tree of Tyrion, which was an image of the eldest of trees, white Telperion, which Yavanna caused to grow in the land of the Valar. This white tree that gets planted in Gondor is symbolically extremely important because it echoes, again, echoes things from the first age and be before that. Telperion in Valinor. And it is planted in a place you may not expect. We see it at the end of the Third Age in Minas Tirith, up at the top of the tower. But originally, it was in Minas Ithil, with the house of Isildur, because he was the one that saved the fruit from the tree. Remember when that happened in Numenor? He's the one that stole it. He brings the tree with him and plants it just outside of Mordor. So what about the stones, these seven stones? Well, you probably have a guess of what those are. They were divided up. Three Elendil took, and his sons each took two. Those of Elendil were set in towers upon Amon Bered and upon Amon Sol in the city of Anumanas. But those of his sons were at Minas Ithil and Minas Anor and at Orthanc and in Osgiliath. And then it says, Now these stones had this virtue that those who looked therein might perceive in them things far off, whether in place or in time. For the most part, they revealed only things near to other kindred stones, for the stones each called to each. But those who possessed great strength of will and of mind might learn to direct their gaze whither they would. Thus, the Numenorians were aware of many things that their enemies wished to conceal, and little escaped their vigilance in the days of their might. These are the Palantiri. These are the circles, those glowing, eye-looking circle or ball things that you see in the movies. And this explains why certain people have access to them in the films or in the books, there's one still in Minas Tirith, 
There's one at Orthanc, which Saruman ends up using. There was one at Minas Ithil, which was taken over by the Witch King. And in all, there are seven total. So where did they all go? I'm going to dig into that in the bonus episode this week. So we'll get more into the specifics of what happens to the seeing stones and and who happens to maybe have them, you know, by the third age. Uh, but initially they were used by the Numenorians and are here with the Arnorians and Gondorians, the Dunedain. So at the end of this section, we're given a little bit more details here. It says, it is said that the towers of Amun Beride, I bet it's Beride, B-E-R-A-I-D, Beride, were not built indeed by the exiles of Numenor. These are in the north, but were raised by Gilgalad for Elendil, his friend. And the seeing stone of Amun Beride was set in Alastirion, the tallest of the towers. This is a series of towers that were placed in the north. This is in Arnor. And then we're given a little bit more detail about Elendil. Thither, I love that word, Elendil would repair, meaning rest and recuperate. And thence he would gaze out over the sundering seas when the yearning of exile was upon him. Imagine that, using the Palantir to see out across the sea, to focus his his gaze back to the land he came from, wondering if it's still there. And it is believed that thus he would at whiles see far away, and get this, even the tower of Avalon upon Aresia, where the master stone abode and yet abides. These stones were gifts of the Eldar to Amandil, father of Elendil, for the comfort of the faithful of Numenor in their dark days, when the elves might come no longer to that land under the shadow of Sauron. They were called the Palantiri, those that watch from afar, but all those that were brought to Middle-earth long ago were lost. And you have to remember that this story is written as if all of these events have already happened. And so, of course, by the fourth age or whenever this is actually established, there's no specific date. A lot of this stuff has already come to pass and is now deep in the history of the world. But it's interesting. These were gifts from the Eldar and Elendil would use them to gaze across the sea. His heart was always at the sea, much like some of the people he descended from. And sometimes he would see as far as the lands of Valinor. Isn't that interesting? And there's still a master stone out there somewhere. What that master stone does? Does it power the rest of them from a distance? How does it actually work? We're not really given the details here. But what we do know is that in these dark days, with the ending of Numenor and all the terribleness that had happened at this point, you have the establishment of the faithful and their cities and this new beacon of hope toward the end of the Second Age. And this creates that foundation of friendship between men and elves that eventually forms the Last Alliance. Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, the Elder Scrolls Lorecast, the Witcher Lorecast, and more at robotsradio.net. 
If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at robots underscore radio or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes or just search Robots Radio Discord or find the link on robotsradio.net. I'll see you next time. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.